This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, November 20th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Harold Jimenez. How you doing, Harold? Awesome. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, so who are you, and what the heck do you do? All right. Uh, well, thanks, thanks for having me, of course. Um, my name's Harold. I uh, lead the Heroic Postgres team. Um, that's, in a nutshell, what I do. <laughs> you used to, where did you work before Heroku? I, I can't remember. Yeah? Oh, I remember clearly. Uh, I actually worked at ThoughtBot uh, oh, okay. just a few years back uh, when you guys were only a Boston uh, shop. That's it's right. Pretty, pretty impressive, uh, the growth I've seen there. Yeah. How many people worked here when you, when you joined? Do you remember? I'm going to say between uh, 15 and 20 people. It was uh, quite the boutique. A little, little, little bigger now. Yeah. So you, you run Postgres for Heroku. That's pretty awesome. Did you, I remember when you left to go to Heroku, did you start off being in charge of that team or did you get up, get up there? Yeah. So when I joined uh, Heroku, I, you know, I always had a very deep uh, appreciation for databases and Postgres in particular, given my, uh, you know, the stuff that I was doing before ThoughtBot even. Uh, but even at ThoughtBot, I, I guess, um, you know, I was always like a proponent of Postgres. Um, and it kind of, you know, um, led to a big interest in uh, joining the Heroku Postgres team. And when I joined, I was a purely an engineer. Uh, I always had, an, you know, a bit of a bend for management. Um, so that was kind of part of the ongoing conversations. But I was definitely just an engineer um, contributing as much as I could back then. I was kind of responsible for writing the uh the what what currently is the hobby plans so when you get a heroku app uh the default database that you get um is provided by this infrastructure that i wrote kind of when i got started here um so that was a a good sprint Uh, that thing is still running strong Mm. i remember you being into postgres even when i knew you back at thoughtbot because like i remember you wrote a a thing that pulled out a random chunk of the Heroku docs or the readme or sorry, the, the Postgres readme Oh yeah, for you to like read once a day or something. Do you remember this? This was uh, uh, rtfmroulette.heroku.com, which probably is bit rotted by now. Um, yeah, that was like a little, you know, thing where uh, it would give you a random um, doc um, page where you can like, you know, uh, learn basically. Uh, but yeah, before that, before ThoughtBot, even um, you know, you know I, I've always had kind of a data bend. Um, I was kind of uh, uh, doing data analytics, you know, using languages like R and databases from everything from SQL Server, Oracle, MySQL, Postgres. Um, and back then, we did big migrations from you know infrastructure to uh, from my from my um, Microsoft SQL Server to and Oracle to Postgres, and that's kind of where I got my chops um, for Postgres. And then even at ThoughtBot, you're right, you know, I was kind of a proponent for Postgres and um, trying to move away from the others kind of thing. Um, and then it kind of led one thing to another and, yeah, ended up uh, really liking the Heroku Postgres team and joining up and, you know, doing doing engineering here. So then after a while, you know, we I always had, like, this management thing that I wanted to kind of explore and, um, you know, over time... Um, kind of grew up, grew up grew into that it's more of a career change not a promotion i feel um 
yeah, it's 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 actually management is more complex than uh, than people believe. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've been discovering that myself recently. Yeah, it's it's its own skill set for sure. Yeah, and it's all new things, new learnings. Um, uh, really, really complex and interesting, and yeah, it's uh, it's cool stuff. So you guys just had a pretty big announcement. Yeah, so the last uh, the last few months have been quite busy for us. So, um, we the, the big big deal here has been uh, so we're calling all these things uh, like under the umbrella of Heroku Postgres 2.0, and uh, really what that means is that we've kind of released a few features and, and new plan tiers um, uh, depending on your on your use cases. Right, uh, the the main uh, features there that you'll see on the higher tiers are high availability and what we're calling rollback. Rollback is basically the ability to, well, as the word says, roll back um, your data to a point in time in the past. So this is great for things like, oh, I ran a bad migration. Let me just go ahead and roll it back. Or, you know, you, it's, it's not difficult to kind of push code that over time just creates bad data, right? Um, and so being able to go back and, like, recover that data and then consolidate and, you know, push better code that doesn't keep like polluting your database is a good thing. How does how does that work? How do you roll back? Uh, from the user perspective, it ha- well from your perspective really. How how are you able to roll back, I should say? Yeah, let me uh, let me let me uh, give you the overall thing. So from use from user perspective it kind of looks like you're creating a fork, a database fork, which is a feature that we've had for a while. Which basically is just clones my database. It clones your database. Um, and the way forking works as well as rollback, they're actually um, so I would say fork is a um, a form of rollback. You know, uh, what really what really happens is that um, we ca- we take snapshots of your database every every night. Um, this is called base backups, and these are physical backups, like bit to bit tarballs of what's on your server. And we ship that over to S3. At the same time, every sixty seconds at most, we ship what Postgres calls write ahead logs, which is just a journal of. Uh, uh, commits that occur on, on your database. Um, and that's what, you know, once we ship that over to S3, um, at most every 60 seconds, uh, we can actually reconstruct that database on a new, on new hardware by downloading that base backup and then replaying those logs on top of that backup. And so the fork case is simply says, oh, replay all the logs that are available. And that's how you get the, the, the most recent thing. Uh, but the rollback case basically says, oh, just replay logs until this point in time. And so that's how it works in the back end. Uh, we're kind of leveraging all the work that we've done in the past with like continuous protection, which is this thing that ships you know, wallet right ahead logs over to S3 uh, and the base backup stuff and just made it... Um, a product, you know, made it productized it, made it uh, good UX and that kind of thing. That's cool. The the rollback thing definitely would have come in handy a couple times in the past for me. I've I've done my fair share of like fat fingering things. Yeah, and the other point around this is that um, once your database gets to a certain point, uh, it's almost impossible to create a actual logical backup of your database, which is what we use, or the product is PG backups, right? So if you're, you know, a lot of people just take PG backup snapshots every. Our, you know, we've seen this in the past, like taking them every hour or relying on them heavily uh, on the nightly backups. But it turns out that, you know, once you start reaching 50, 100, 200 gigs, um, even taking those backups is just impossible, right? And so this is where something like our continuous protection and physical backups comes in. You know, if you go out in the wild, 
on the Postgres community. Um, this is kind of the same story. This is not something that we're um, kind of making up. This is just the way it works, right? Uh, once you have a backup or a database that big, you know, logical backups are just impossible. And so we, you know, we prioritize this other thing, which is you know around continuous protection, physical backups uh, to allow for that. So you would use a you you would use PG backups for merely exporting your data out of Heroku Postgres or importing data into Heroku Postgres, but not for your operational like safety. What's what? How long would it take me if I wanted to roll back a some some amount of time? It depends. Uh, we introduced kind of a progress bar when you do that. Um, but it'll depend dramatically on two things. One is the size of your data. So uh, if you have a gigantic database uh, and you're just downloading this big base backup into a new server, you know that's, that's going to introduce some time. But then beyond that, uh, how many writes have you done since that base backup was taken um, and just the time that it takes to replay? So it could take anywhere from minutes up to hours, you know, many, many hours if you have a really big thing. Mm. So you guys also talk about having high availability. Yeah. And this is, there's an automatic failover to, I think, a hot spare. Is that what this is? Yeah, we call it a standby. Um, and a standby, um, so basically the way the system works, let me step back a little bit. Uh, we, we have monitoring, you know, for all these databases, and we always have. And the way it works is that we have a ton of Heroku dynos, who, which are hitting this these databases from different network locations, uh, figuring out whether they're available or not. Uh, and historically, what we've done is that once we cannot connect to a database, we, you know, there's a state machine attached to a database that runs on this app, and it goes from the available state to an uncertain state. So the, on the uncertain state, it's possible that, you know, basically one dyno may have not been able to, uh, you know, detect availability, uh, but some other dyno, dyno might. Uh, and so we have a two-minute uh, timeout there. If you've been uh, uncertain for a full two minutes, then, yeah, for sure this thing is down. Let's act on it. So previously what act on it meant has been, you know, we have little robots that kind of come in and um, start resolving the situation. So it's either like bringing back the service or migrating to new hardware. All these things happen automatically. And if, uh, if they actually fail, then we get paged you know, and require manual human intervention. So now what we're doing is um, in the event of unavailability, we actually create what really is a follower behind the scenes. This is what that standby is. It's just a read replica that's always up to date with your primary. And in the event of this failure mode, what what actually happens now is that we swap out um, we kill your primary as fast as we can to avoid the um, the split brain problem, which is when your application writes to more than one database at a time, and then you have like inconsistent data, primary keys that don't match up, things like that. So first thing is like do all the things that we possibly can to kill the primary completely, and that includes things like you know um, blocking Postgres connections to it, uh, asking AWS to shut the instance down completely, things like that. And we um, basically point your app at the new standby um, after having said, hey, you're no longer a replica. You are now a writable instance, basically. Mm, so you basically promote the follower. We promote the follower. We repoint your application to that follower. Then we recreate a follower, right? Or a standby in this case. Sure. Interesting. Are you, how often does this happen? Um, 
It depends, you know. I think it's gotten quite better in the in the past year or so. Um, you know, with think, you know, one of the things that, you know, usually things like stuck EBS volumes would be a huge problem, but with the with the new provision IOPS volumes, uh, they've been much more. Um, much better for for availability, uh, but also things like transient uh, network connections um, cause unavailability and network partitions and things like that. Uh, you know, they you, we have such a big fleet of Postgres databases that we see it all the all all the time. <laughs> you know, multiple times a day. Um, but for your particular instance, you know, it, it'll depend. It's kind of like whether you're lucky lucky or not. Uh, but when it happens, you know, you with a high availability product, you're either looking at you know a two and a half minute downtime versus ten to fifteen minutes at best. Um, so that's kind of where that comes in. So when you're choosing like what Heroku Postgres plan do I need, you're basically making the first decision you're making is how much availability do I need? How how much downtime can I take? Because uh, you know this is the cloud. It's a very I want to say hostile kind of environment out there. Uh, we can do. We can play all the tricks we can to kind of make that better. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's the cloud, you know. And um, things do go down, uh, and when they do go down, we need to be prepared to kind of recover from that. Um, and so it's whether you know the first choice you make is how much, you know, how much uptime do I need? Okay, I need, you know, a few hours uh, versus a few minutes tops. Then beyond that, you choose like okay. What's the performance I need? And that's how you go, you know, kind of dig into the plans. Mm, makes sense. Uh, I'll give you credit on the heroku.com slash Postgres page. There's not one use of the word cloud. <laughs> and, and I would know because I, I have the Chrome uh, cloud to butt extension. Yeah, yeah, there's no butts in there. There's no butts here. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so nice job talking about your service without talking about, like, the implementation details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what has life been like uh, in the manager world? Are you still writing code? Do you still push code? I do. Um, you know, not as much as I used to. Um, you know, the Heroku Postgres team is pretty big-ish and keeps growing. Um, so, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of one-on-ones, a lot of just, like, making sure the team is doing the right things and uh, wow. helping make decisions and this and that. But, you know, whenever... I need to kind of roll up my sleeves and write some code I do. Um, but that's been decreasing quite significantly lately. You know, uh, every moment that I'm writing code is time that I'm not spending improving, you know, my team. So um, I try and tend to do that more now. Uh, but when push comes to shove, you know, if I have to write code, I do. And I still wear a pager and all that stuff. So, How do you improve your team? Well, uh Basically, things like, are we communicating properly? Are we, uh, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air. Is everyone aware of what's going on? Are, the, are people doing the right things? Is, is it good for the product? Is it not good for the product? Is it, a, is it just a, uh, a prototype that we want to do and that's cool? Um, are people aligned with kind of our goals as a business? Are people, you know, those kinds of things. It's mostly like conversations are had that are very up in the air that talk about like where we're going as a product and making sure that people are aligned with that um, so that they can make their own decisions, right? Uh, everyone here is pretty senior at the end of the day. Um, so it's really about like uh, making sure 
um, kind of the, the social structure of the team is healthy and that, um, you know, when people need to be paired up, like I facilitate that or things like uh, inter-team communications are um, better, you know, because, you know, you nudge the needle in one way or the other kind of thing. Uh, those kinds of things, you yeah. mm. Were you, I think you, yeah, you were, at, you, you joined Heroku before you guys were acquired. That's, is that correct? No, that's not true. I joined Heroku, I don't know, a few months after the acquisition. Oh, okay. So you, you, don't, you don't know a before and after, I guess. I don't. I do think that when I joined, it's pretty much similar, like similar culture to the before. Uh, you know, my paycheck comes from Salesforce, of course. But uh, beyond that, um, pretty independent operation. But yeah, yeah, you have, you have to say that. I'll, I'll ask you the real details after the call. Uh, what what do you mean? <laughs> uh, you, you you can't talk crap about your employer. I mean, well, but I'm uh, uh, there's not really a lot of crap to talk about. I'm I'm actually quite happy with how things are going. No, that's awesome. Uh, so what does an average day look like for you then? An average day, well, depends. Um, I recently moved up to Marin County, which is like north of uh, San Francisco. So my commute is like an hour um, from the office. Um, so I kind of get up early. We have now someone working out of Europe in Dublin, Ireland. So kind of touch base with them, uh, early in the morning, eight, eight in the morning, nine in the morning, something like that. Um, and then I head up into the office, the days that I do work from the office, some days I just stay at home and work from there. Um, I kind of have, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes fires to tackle or, uh, you know, continuously having like conversations with either anyone at Heroku or my team, um, helping out whenever I can, making, helping making decisions, communicating with customers, you know, doing demos, talking to people on podcasts, things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember feeling super lucky one day I had like this weird Postgres issue and I just like was able to ping you on Google Talk and that was insanely helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime and anyone who wants to do that, like, that's totally cool. Um, I'm happy to I'm I'm actually excited to hear feedback from people um, and kind of bounce bounce ideas and share things that we're doing and whether we can improve things. That, like that's all important stuff, you know. That it, part of kind of my new role is that as well, of the product discovery kind of deal. And so that yeah, I do a lot of that. I have a lot of like hangouts with customers and talk through things and help them out with complex like. I don't know database issues that may run they may run into um kind of help them like figure those out um give them the tools to kind of understand how I do it so that um it's easier for them to do it next time um yeah so I don't know I guess in the broad sense come to the office you know work lunch work uh we use um we don't do daily standups but we do do uh like email stand-up kind of thing. We, there's a product or, or an app called I Done This. And so basically you receive a, an email at the end of the day, you type in whatever you did that day, and then the team is like, okay, this is happening, I don't need to do it, whatever. Um, you receive like the updates from the team the next morning, basically. Interesting. Does everybody, does everybody get like a summary email of everyone else's work? Is that Exactly. Exactly, and then if you go into the web app, you can comment and ask and plus one and whatever. That sounds handy. You've been happy with that? Yeah, yeah, it's been working. You know, it's been working okay. Um, yeah, I like the, the the format basically, which is like get an email, respond, take ten minutes to kind of think through your day, um, 
and like that's that's good. Um, and with a distributed team, it's also good to have like everyone, you know, even different time zones, which is kind of a new thing for us. Uh, that kind of lends to better like uh, understanding of what everyone's doing. On Mondays, we do like a weekly planning meeting where we go through our Trello cards and kind of figure out what people are doing, what people are committing to, um, you know, any new ideas. We walk through like our support for the week uh, and kind of look for trends in our support and figure out if that should be a change in the product, for example, um, things like that. Yeah, so Mondays are like that. Thursdays is what we call Maker's Day, which is... Uh, a day that you should have zero meetings and you should be able to kind of produce something. And so it's a non-distraction kind of day completely. And so typically on Thursdays, I work from home, actually. Um, Fridays, another cool thing is we have beer club, which is like at 4.30 or 5, we, you know, there's a big number of uh, <laughs> variety of beers and we just consume them, uh, which is a, a good end of the week, typically. Sure. Was, I remember that from the Thoughtbot days if you were big into sort of burgers yeah, and beer. Yeah, yeah. Actually, recently I started brewing, which is a lot of fun. What are you brewing? The last batch was uh, a wheat beer. So half of it actually made 10 gallons, which is double what you typically do. So I got a new kettle, which is awesome, which now fits like 13 gallons. So you can actually do a double batch. And so I made a wheat beer and half of it will be a Hefeweizen. And the other half I'll use a different yeast and different hops to kind of make a different kind of beer. So it's still going to be a wheat beer, but it's going to be more of a wheat hoppy ale kind of thing. Let's see how it turns out. Still got to wait for the holidays for it to ferment though, but should be cool. Nice. Any other uh, hobbies that you've gotten into? I don't know. I've always been a um, guitar player. So and I kind of picked it up recently again, actually. Um, on my recent trip to Dublin for PG Conf Europe, uh, kind of met up with, this guy who had massive amounts of beautiful and amazing guitars, and we kind of jammed uh, quite a bit and kind of picked it back up. So yeah, recently uh, a lot of guitaring as well. Cool. So how how do you stay? You mentioned a Postgres conference just there. How how do you stay up to date on what's going on in the Postgres world? Well, the you know we had heard the Postgres are pretty uh, involved in the Postgres community. Everything from like you know we we commit patches to Postgres uh, all the way down to like. Um, you know, provide direction and as well, or influence, you know, in, in that we can, um, as well as like funding projects and things like that. Um, so we're pretty much aware of all the stuff that's going on in Postgres, right? Yeah. D- does anybody run more Postgres instances that you, you know? know no, no, not yet, no. Okay. So you have a little pull on the Yeah. Community. And we, you know, what's interesting is that because of the sheer amount of like, Postgres instances that we run, we kind of run into the problems that a typical Postgres database won't run into unless, you know, it's been a decade or something. So, like, we can actually, that's why, that's the value here. It's like, this is how people are using it. These are the new developers of the modern, like, software development era. Uh, This is what they expect. And these are the problems that they're running into. And, you know, let's go fix that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess we're, how do we keep updated? I think it's just a interpersonal communication at this point. Um, but there's not a lot of, uh, like, big conferences that go on uh, every year. There's a lot of smaller, like, PG Day conferences that happen all around the world. And definitely encourage you to, like, check them out whenever they're local. Uh, but the big ones are one in Europe and one in Toronto. 
in Canada. And so, <clears throat> yeah, we tend to attend those and speak and, you know, mingle with uh, the community and it's pretty much it. Is that where you find most of your new people that you bring on the team? A lot of it, uh, but not, not all. Um, yeah, definitely not all. Some of, some of our team members weren't really data people before, or before joining. They were just solid developers who really liked playing with servers and kind of had an interest in the cool stuff that we were doing and kind of stuck around, right? Others come from other databases, you know, like hackers that have been hacking on, um, you know, other databases like Oracle or things like that, you know. But yeah, some of them actually do come from conferences. Hmm, that's interesting. So you, you don't necessarily look for like deep domain experience as you know general ability and aptitude. Yeah, if you look at the the amount of things that we do, and you know we need everything in the stack. When, when we call full stack here, we're really talking the full, full, full stack, right? And so everything from like Linux kernel hackers and packagers to uh, people who really understand the internals of Postgres and can hack in there and make changes and improve it and provide that back to the community kind of thing, um, all the way up to like infrastructure developers who don't necessarily have the Postgres internals knowledge but really understand how it works kind of thing or can gain that knowledge, all the way up to like web application developers and CLI and user experience kind of thing, right? So we really need the full breadth of like, if you want to deliver a good product, you need all these people working together. So, yeah, it's important to have some of the lower level stuff, which is what we would get from uh, um, the Postgres community itself. Uh, and that's super valuable. And we were always interested in that, of course. Uh, but also all these other things. So if you're like, I don't know, an API web developer or something like that, um, there's nothing saying you can't be part of Heroku kind of thing. There's definitely plenty to do in that area, too. So what are the kind of problems that people run into when they've got their database hosted with you guys? So typical problems that people run into with Postgres. Um, I think the, the, the major biggest thing that people run, will, run into, will run into with um, any of the like, single cluster databases, which is you know, everything from the Yanari plan up to Omeka or Ryu, um, is the fact that people just, open up so many connections against the database. And, um, you know, every connection, even though it's not doing anything, um, comes with a cost, right? Um, and so what I'm seeing a lot of is people running things like, I don't know, Sidekick or just a bunch of workers that are uh, draining some queue somewhere, uh, and they hold their own connections. Or the other typical thing is like... Um, multi-process or multi-threading uh, web servers that require like, I don't know, five or six processes. So at that point you have like a dyno with uh, five to seven connections uh, to the database. And then you multiply that by how many web dynos you have times, you know, or plus how many workers you have and then really adds up. And so how that manifests itself is that, uh, Postgres will just simply not be able to um, either establish new connections because it runs out of memory or serve uh, any complex query. So if you have like aggregations like sums and averages and things like that, counts, uh, or joins or sorts, these kinds of things take memory, right? And so basically 
you run into a wall. Like, oh, I'm going to scale up because um, I hit 10 crunch or whatever it may be. Um, you scale your web dynos and your database just floors, right? That's the reason. And so people really need to start like monitoring what the connection count is. Uh, another problem that I've seen happen a lot is applications that just leak connections. And so these are connections that are established, but things like Active Record no longer have a handle on it. So they never get closed until the dyno gets restarted, for example. So, and that just explodes the number of connections against your database and therefore really destroys your, your performance, right? Interesting. So, so how do you monitor? How do I notice that these things are happening? So there's a query that you can run. Uh, you can do like select count star from PG stat activities, and that'll give you how many connections are currently established. Uh, but we actually, so if you want to like tie that into your metrics pipeline, that's a way to do it. The other way would be if you just tail your logs, uh, we actually spit out like how many connections you currently have, how many of them are waiting and have locks, for example. Um, yeah, bad lock uh, management is another big problem for a lot of people. Uh, uh, but in addition to that, you know, I encourage you to kind of look into what the uh, metrics that we show uh, in the Heroku Postgres logs in your app, because uh, we show all sorts of things these days. You know, we recently shipped a thing where we actually show you like CPU usage and memory usage and number of connections and a number of things. So these are all important to like tie them into your, your dashboards and things when you're managing your app and you're figuring out like capacity planning and things like that. Because, um, yeah. Can I just wait until you IM me that this is broken? I mean, can, can I just wait until you, like, you let me know that my database is borked and I should do something <laughs> to fix it? Well, you're talking about the, the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's completely broken and, uh, I mean, this, this is a case that actually happens. Like, you completely destroy your database. It went down because you just can't keep up at all. Uh, we detect that, and then we open a support ticket against you, right? Our systems will do that. And so, yeah. But at that point, uh, you have bigger problems, right? You should have monitoring around your app that also does this. Like, you should still carry a pager, even though we're carrying a pager, right? Um, you should know when your thing is down. You should expect us to bring it back up. Uh, uh, but, yeah, these things are, I think, normal operations that you should be aware of. What actually fires your pager? When do you get paged? I get paged, so the data team gets paged whenever our automation cannot fix the problems. Yeah. So there's a bunch of like problems that occur during the day. Most of them do not page us. You know, Maybe 10 or 20% of them actually do page me. How often does that happen? Uh, I got data. Uh, <laughs> And it's it it's gotten so much better. You know, prior to the Heroku Postgres 2.0 release, our main main uh, like priority was team health. That meant, among other things, uh, just making it so that we get paged less, right? And so, uh, like last night was pretty terrible for me, but it was just one repeat offender kind of thing. Uh, but typically, you know, once or twice a day, you would get paged. And there's no control over when you get paged. You know, someone someone may be running a batch process in the in at three in the morning and destroyed something about it, and they don't even know. But we get paged and go fix it, right? Um, so, for example, I don't know, your write ahead logs cannot be shipped to S3 because S3 is kind of slowish or sluggish or whatever, and it starts filling up the disk on on the server. Uh, we have to go in and kind of figure that out uh, without you even knowing, kind of thing. Yeah. 
um, those kinds of things. Do you do some sort of like investigation after these things happen to say like, why did this happen? How can we prevent it in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all these things end up in, in Trello cards and we kind of discuss them and we, you know, we open up tickets with infrastructure providers if we have to, you know, like it's, um, it's a pretty profound operation kind of thing. Uh, our main thing is we do not want to get paged, right? We want to build the systems that will keep your database healthy. And part of Heracopos 2.0 as well, this kind of ties into that, is that we are actually going to tell you via email when things are just really bad. So things like, oh, you have these seven indexes that you haven't used ever. Like You should drop those because when you write to your database, you're paying the cost of writing to that index as well. It's just making your writes really slow. So drop these seven things. Yeah. Things like, oh, you have all this bloat in your database now. Bloat happens when you delete rows or when you update rows. Basically what Postgres does is that it writes a new row and keeps the old one around, um, but the old one is just not visible to any transaction after the thing that updated or deleted committed, right? And so that creates bloat. If you have a data, uh, a table that's just really big and you're updating or deleting from all the time, you're going to create bloat. And that bloat manifests itself as really bad performance when you read or write to it, right? Because it creates bloat both on the heap on disk and on the indexes. And so, yeah, you either have to re-index that index to get rid of the bloat or think of a new strategy or vacuum your database, which could be pretty aggressive and you want to do it like at three in the morning or something. So the, the vacuum in the database gets rid of those dead entries? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're actually called dead tuples. Um, yeah. That's, and there's an auto-vacuum um, daemon that runs in Postgres instances, but if you're doing it so aggressively that just auto-vacuum can't keep up, then it can't keep up. Right? Um, it's such an aggressive operation to vacuum that the auto-vacuum daemon will be like, oh, I'm going to step back and wait another 10 seconds, see if I can kick it in again. Um, and if it ever can do that, then it won't do it, right? Uh, for those particular tables and stuff. You said that you're you're going to be alerting people of these things, or you already are. We already are. Uh, we did it uh, once already. I think we're going to do it every. I mean, it's still a little bit of product, but probably do it every week or every two weeks or something like that. But yeah, it's really a good email to get kind of thing. So yeah, I, I never I never think of needing to. M- worry about bloated tables i just think of a database as being like really good at holding a whole bunch of data and i kind of don't worry worry about it yeah there's definitely strategies around that so like for example the way so we store all the metrics around all heroku postgres databases that includes like how many connections you have what size your data is how many tables you have i don't know a bunch of metrics around your database we store those on a heroku postgres database right so that's like the system that's backing that and so one of the first strategies that you want to do there is uh, consider that a write-only or append-only table so that you're not creating bloat. So if you're not updating or deleting that data, um, you just won't create bloat at all. When you say consider that, you mean like consider all my data like that? No, no, no. Just, just like the gigantic... So this is an example of like a metrics table. Okay, when you have a, when you have a really big table. Yeah, whenever you can. We have events, we have logs, when you have... Like anything that's just a pen only, for example, our state machines are, is another example of that. Um, every state transition gets stored on a separate table that we only ever write to. Uh, and it doesn't get stored on the actual object. So there's, you know, the actual, so say we have a databases table, right? Um, there's no state column on that database 
row uh, so that we don't create bloat on that. We instead just keep writing to a separate like stage table uh, that have a foreign key to this databases table, right? And we just append to it. Like, oh, now it's on this state, now it's on that state. And then we have like efficient querying ways of doing things, right? Right. And you can also always go back and see what, what how things were. Yeah, there's a history of things there. I've been I've been moving more towards that in my programming in general and, and also just like in the data I'm storing, which is more like recording of information at a certain time and then adding new information as opposed to like updating the existing stuff yeah that's a good strategy because you just never create bloats now you could like and and it's good for like for other reasons right like i said like you can go back and look at stuff it's it's easy to replay things and see what happened and where things went wrong and all that absolutely now uh, now with rollback you can roll back but yeah the the main thing i think is uh well for compliance issues you know big companies run into that all the time they really need to start storing like every single thing that happens to their systems so that's how we do it um but yeah just not creating bloat is uh, is the way to go and so actually let me just mention um in terms of um this like giant table, the, the the problem that you can run into is that of course it's giant. <laughs> so over the years, you're going to start accumulating, you know, multiple thousand things per second about multiple thousand other things. You know, like uh, it's just too much data. And so there's a thing in Postgres called uh, table partitioning, um, whereby like you have a parent table. Um, and you can create any number of child tables that basically inherit um, the schema from that parent table. And then there's a lot of setup to do around triggers and check constraints, um, which are ultimately going to make it so that your application only needs to kind of have a conversation with the parent table. So it always writes to the parent. It always reads from the parent. And so that makes it transparent to your app to have any number of child tables, um, which is great because now you've like separated the problem. Now you have like a, t- a ton of small tables, each with their own small indexes, which, by the way, you can now actually archive because now you can delete. Instead of deleting data, you just drop a table, and therefore you don't create more bloat. right? And so that's the strategy for that. And so we're doing it here um, for storing like metrics or any databases. It's working actually quite well. So, so I'm going to ask you a, a question that it feels like I should already know the answer to. Okay. So like, so like, say we've got a table that's a million rows long, and I'm like, yo, I need item 500,000. Is Postgres doing a binary search to it? Is it able to jump right to that record? Like, how, how does it find it? Like, why does it become slow when the table gets big? Uh, it is doing a binary search if, you're, if you have a binary tree index on it. There are various types of indexes in Postgres. And so the, the default, if you don't specify anything else, will be a B tree index. And so probably if that is happening, uh, it could be that the B tree structure is unbalanced. And the solution to that is just to re-index. Postgres 9.4 will introduce... Ha, have you ever used um, create index concurrently? Mm-mm. No, so create index concurrently is super awesome. You should use it. Uh, it's a way to create an index without um, acquiring a lock against the table, so that you can create an index on a live database with your live app, and it'll just create it on the back- background, and then you know it'll, it'll take a lot longer, but it won't affect your operations, right? So that's really cool. So Postgres nine four, which is the next release, will include uh, hopefully. Um, there's already a patch for it out there uh, for re-index concurrently. So basically what that means is that you'll be able to like bring health back to your index just by doing re-index concurrently, which currently 
would block and you won't be able to like write to it until it's done. Okay. But so if I have a big table and I, and I want an element with a, with a certain primary key, it, there's no way to like, Postgres doesn't just jump right to that element. It has to do a search for that. It'll do a search, but there's various strategies for searching. The most, the worst possible scenario would be a sequential scan, in which case it'll go row by row, go hidden disk, uh, row by row, and until it finds the thing that you wanted. Um, and that's just, you know, for a big table, uh, very inefficient. For a small table, much more efficient than using an index. Uh, so that's a, that's an interesting question that people sometimes have. Like, I have an index on this thing. God damn it! Why is it not using it? Well, your table is tiny. It's actually faster to do a sequential scan, right? Postgres knows this. So does the index hold like the offset of where it needs to go look? Like what is in that index? Yeah, yeah. The index is like, here's the primary key or the data that you indexed, and here's where the page on disk is. And then beyond that, there's like all sorts of caching that have happened, right? So once it found, um, once it traversed the index using binary, you know, not binary lookup, but B-tree traversal, which is much more efficient than that. Um, so once it finds where it is, it'll ask. It'll go through various levels of is it in this cache. The first level is called the shared buffer, which is just a bunch of memory that Postgres itself manages, um, and where some of your data and indexes will be if you've recently used them or written to them, right? And so that data will just be right there in memory. Then beyond that, Postgres does heavy, heavy use of the operating system page level caching. And so it might even ask the operating system, hey, give me this page. Um, And the operating system may be like, oh, yeah, I have this in memory. Here you go. Or it might be like, oh, crap, i got to go down to the spindles and give you the data. In which case, that's where you get the, the the slow queries, right? When you go to disk, that's where the slow queries occur. Uh, if, if the thing is cached, then you're, you're, you're good, right? So we recommend actually like monitoring your cache also, which is another thing that we ship out those metrics. Um, um, so monitor that cache, and that cache should be above 99%. If it's below 99% hit rate, um, you have to rethink things. You need a bigger instance with more memory, or you need to you know, manage that what we call the hot data set. Interesting. So, so the target is 99%. I wouldn't have guessed it was so high. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so memory is just big enough that we can put a whole bunch of the data in there, so most of it should be in there. Yeah, it's not like most of your data has to fit in cache or in memory. It's more like the data that you read all the time should be in cache. Yeah, okay. It's about the access patterns. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it, it kind of fits most OLTP applications, which is the good story here, right? Uh, you write something, it's typically going to be read up... Uh, shortly or you read something and it's going to be read again a few times and when that happens it gets it gets cached by either the operating system or postgres right and so yeah monitoring that is big if you're at like 80 percent or something we might even send you an email you know saying like yeah you got to rethink this hmm. maybe you need a bigger yeah you might need a bigger thing you might need to rethink how you access your data, um, implement your own caching. I don't know. Postgres is really good about caching. There's a really good art article on the Dev Center that I might just give you a link to later. Sure, we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, explain like really, really what's, what's going on with uh, caching in Postgres. Caches are a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And even more beautiful when you don't have to invalidate it. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the case of Postgres. So like, if I can avoid creating caches in Memcached or Redis, uh, and just rely on Postgres for that, uh, all the better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Caches are nice when they're other people's problems. <laughs> yeah, so is data. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Although you, your job basically puts you in charge of everyone's data. Yeah. Do you guys talk about how many Postgres instances you have? You probably can't say, can you? Um, if you look at our blog post, uh, the most recent blog post, we did put it there. We actually run over 750,000 databases. Um, we, I don't know, we, we occasionally say spill some beans. Um, but yeah, that's the number we're at right now. That's crazy. Yeah, they're just a Heroku Postgres team, and it's running almost, you know, equal number of or more servers than the rest of Heroku combined. You know, we run a ton of servers. How many, do, do you have dedicated machine instances for databases? Yep, absolutely. That's a good question, though. Um, so there's two database plans. Um, I should explain a little deeper here, even. Uh, so, like, there's two plans where we take a big instance, a big server, and we partition it using, you know, Truett and Alexi containers. And in each one of those, we put a database cluster. And then we give that to our customer. And so basically, you're sharing a large amount of resources with a number of other customers on that box. One of those, um, if one of those customers on that same box is, box is doing, like, a lot very heavy loads, you might see I.O. degradation. You might see your cache being busted, right, things like that. And so that kind of, you know, you're paying 50 bucks at this point. So uh, you, you get a big server, uh, you know, you get a, a production level thing where you have forking, you have followers, you have the ability to do high availability and rollbacks, things like that. So it, it's, it already has like production level features, right? And that would be the Yanari uh, plan, which is at 50 bucks. And then the Tango plan is similar, only we allocate more memory and allow more connections to it. Um, and then beyond that, the Ika, the Baku, and the Mecca, they're all, like, you get your own server, and that's all you, right? So there's no contention at all from any other, like, Postgres databases, basically. Uh, now, there's levels of virtualization going on here, right? Like, you're in an Ika, that's a pretty big box, 7.5 gigabytes, gigabytes of RAM for your caching and stuff. Um, but you're still on virtualized hardware, right? Uh, AKA whatever EC2 is doing. Uh, but it's, I mean, Ika is is really a robust uh, database. Do you guys send some sort of message like, "Hey, you should probably upgrade if we're hitting if you notice that I'm hitting certain performance things"? We never like saying that like, you should upgrade, but we definitely, uh, you know, give options. For example, right now I'm doing with a customer who just has too many connections for the plan they're on, and I'm like, "Look, this instance size cannot take this load." Period. Like, I can't even SSH to the box, and these are the kinds of things that U.S. customers never look at. But if I try to SSH and I run LS, uh, Bash goes like, "Oh, I can't fork the process out of memory." So imagine what like your app is like trying to do here. It's just crazy, and most of these connections are just idle. So again, memory usage, each connection is really expensive. So then I go in and go like, "Okay." I noticed that you're using so-and-so queue system, and it's right on the database. Maybe you should split that out to a different database, even a smaller instance, and then you can free up some, 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 you know, some resources on this instance. Or you should just like, use less, like, be more efficient about your queries and use less connections and make, do things faster. <laughs> or you should get a bigger instance. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess as, uh, what I'm getting at is like, as a customer, like, if you send me an email which is like, hey, We've been watching your stuff, and things are taking a little bit longer than they should because you could use some more RAM. You know, click here, and then I would like, as someone that runs a business and really doesn't want to care about that, like, would click that button immediately. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying it, it might print money for you. Yeah, if people, but it's are, if people are like me, 
Yeah, exactly. I wonder how many people are. Right. And because, you know, like, I run a Rails app, and it makes money, and it's important to us. And, like, we have new, new Relic on it, and so we monitor it, you know, but not, like, every day looking at the performance, watch the database, check out the database cache. How are our cache hits, like, on the, the database cache? Like, that's just, that's at a level of abstraction that I, I tend to not want to think about. So if you just sent me an email, like, hey, this is going on. You want to spend an extra 50 bucks? I'd be like, hell yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, actually, but you know, we we don't send emails. But uh, for certain customers, we actually do uh, just reach out. You know, uh, we get our sales team like, here's a list of people who are like at seventy percent hit cash hit rate. They're having problems. They need help. Give them a call and help them. Right, and then like I'll jump in the call as well and like under you know help them understand that um, what's going on. You know. Um, and it's usually well received. But if you get an email and trying to upsell, like I don't know about you, but I feel like you're just trying to upsell me. I don't. I don't hear my customers complaining. See, I would feel that. I feel that way if you would just pitch me on random add-ons or something. But if you said, "Look, we can see the performance penalty you're paying. We think you your requests will be answered on average forty milliseconds faster." I absolutely want you to send me that email. Yeah, but it's typically like throwing throwing money at the problem. To me, is re- really unsatisfying. I really wish like we had better actionable things to do here. Like, I don't know, these five queries are really destroying your thing. You should check your indexes, for example. But then if you're like a business guy who are not a developer and you contracted out your app and it's running and you have nobody around, then that sucks, right? But yeah, for most people, I, I think it, you know, I'd be making a service to the community if I did that. I, I'd rather teach you how to, how to understand these things and how to track them. So that's, that's more of the goal, I think. So and a good example is that is, um, in Postgres 9.2, there's now a view or an extension called pstat statements. Damn it, everyone should be looking at what the output of that thing is. What it does is that it keeps track of which queries are invoked, what the average time of the execution is, how many times it gets called, you know, when did it, you know, did it, was it served from cache or did it go to disk for it? Like all these things are answered by querying this one view. And you can have like one query that orders by average time and, and uh, some other cost figure. And then just go like explain, analyze that thing and figure out what index you need to add. Cause typically that's all it takes. Just add an index and now you don't need to pay me more money. Just like be happy, right? <laughs> that, that makes me happier. Rather than burning more electricity. Exactly. On Amazon, at Amazon's data center, I, I really want people to like know how to manage these aspects of it instead of like throwing money at the problem, because uh, they'll be happier and we'll be happier as well. So, well, that's that's pretty good to hear, especially from a guy that's managing almost a million databases in the cloud. Yeah, cool. Well, Harold, it's been awesome talking to you, dude. Hey, thanks so much. It's good talking to you too, and say hi to the to the crew. I absolutely will. So, if people wanted to get in touch with you to with with their uh, burning Postgres problems, what's a good way to do that? Uh, just uh, tweet at me, uh, hgmnz, or just shoot me an email. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Harold at Heroku dot com. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Cool. Uh, I'm going to let you go then. Sweet. Thanks so much, man. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 77. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Mike Manor and edited by Igor Stolarski. Thanks for listening.